Well, friends, I invite you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. Thankful for Pastor Rod last week introducing us to uh, his series on Philippians, uh, which, Lord willing, he'll be preaching throughout the year. This morning, we're going to pick back up with 1 Timothy chapter 6 and uh, spend the next few weeks uh, considering this last chapter in the book of Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 6. Before we begin this morning, I want us to think about this proposition. Everyone is under authority. What do I mean? In other words, the question I have before you is, is authority truly universal? So if we were to take a passage like the one before us this morning that clearly has an immediate context dealing with masters and their slaves. Well, by God's grace, we've eradicated that from our society. So if we were to take it to the next level, uh, uh, perhaps a boss or manager and a employee, an employer and an employee. No doubt many of you don't have those anymore. Perhaps you're retired this morning. Perhaps you're self-employed or you're out of work. Does that mean that you don't have authority in your life? I hope to argue to you this morning that every one of us is under some form of authority. Every one of us is under some sort of bond servant. If you own a home, your friend, you're a bond servant to the bank. If you don't pay it, they're going to come after you. All of us are in some sort of servitude relationship to someone else, both positively and negatively. Positively, we think about the, the, the authority submissive to relationship within the home, a husband and a wife, a children and their parents. Oh, we think about the workplace, no doubt, uh, where you perhaps submit to a manager or a boss or an, an owner of a company. Uh, even within the public square, we submit to various forms of authority. Uh, if you go speeding down Frederick Road, you will recognize that there is someone in authority over you. Namely, the police officer who is working on behalf of the citizens of this county, right? That the citizens collectively have authority in the law and what is written, and that they are enforcing the laws. Uh, no doubt we had recognized uh, politically in our country there are various levels of authority to local government, state, national government. All of those are various forms of authority. Perhaps even in your own neighborhood, you might have an HOA where they have authority over you, right? You can't paint your house pink even though you really love the color pink because, well, you can't. Or because you live in a, in a community that is a historic community that's preserved and therefore you can't do certain things to your home. All of us live in authority under others. And all of us, in some measure, have authority over others in our lives. So we think about this dynamic. I believe the principles of 1 Timothy 6, 1 and 2, though may seem distant from us, really generally do have some good application to our lives together in the various places we see authority show up. And friend, as Christians, one of the principles that we want to um, celebrate is that of authority. Friends, authority is not bad. 
Our culture has a, a very love-hate relationship with authority. It doesn't like authority, but it knows it needs authority in order to function as a society. Well, friend, that's no different than us. We need to recognize God's good authority in our lives. And we need to see that those that have authority or are under authority, that's a matter of stewardship. So, friend, if you're a, a dad this morning, or if you're a husband, or, or you're a business owner, or you're a parent, or, or you have some function of authority in the life of someone else, friend, that authority is a measure of God's authority given to you. It's a matter of stewardship. And so the way we use authority is important. But this morning, we're not so much thinking about those who have authority, but rather those who are under authority. So we want to think about how do we treat those in authority over us? What happens? How, uh, do we have rights as a Christian to rebel against those that maybe abuse authority? How are we to abuse those that are maybe bad bosses or just maybe just mean, jerks, whatever they, the way we might describe them? Friends, we've been studying this section where Paul has been using a familiar word throughout. A, a one word unites really chapter 5 and here in the beginning of chapter 6. And the word is honor or respect. Uh, Paul first generally said at the beginning of chapter 5 saying that we ought to honor one another. And he spoke about the various relationships in the life of the local church. He says, Timothy, you ought to honor those in authority over you. Uh, anyways, those men in your church and those women in your church who are older than you, you ought to treat them with respect and honor. You ought to treat those sisters who are under you or, or equal your contemporaries with respect and in all purity. Then he turned the, his attention to widows and he said, listen, church in Ephesus, you need to honor widows. And we thought about what that looks like to respect those tr- just precious gifts that every local church gets. And those are widows who serve our body and serve uh, this church in, in, in really indescribable ways. They are truly a treasured gift. And then we thought uh, two weeks ago about how as a congregation, we ought to honor those who rule well as elders, that they are worthy of double honor. Now, that doesn't mean they're worthy of double pay, like they get double paycheck, um, but rather they ought to be honored not only with respect, but also remuneration. They ought to be respected. Uh, in, in other words, it's, it's not a subservient, like you, know, you just do whatever they say, but it's a respectful, um, willing submission to those who are leading you and shepherding you, and we, we thought through that. Well, friends, Paul just sort of wraps up this house, these house codes Remember, remember, the church is a family, right? We're a household. And one of the, the, the parts of a household in a first century Roman culture would have been slaves. Now, anytime we as contemporary Christians in the 21st century, and, and in light of all the recent conversations about racial inequality here in America, and, and really some of the, the, the some underlining reasons for that, uh, no doubt when we begin to use words like slave and slavery, all of our minds begin to go to the chattel slavery that was experienced here in the Americas uh, during the 17th and 19th century. Uh, all of us, our minds automatically go there. And that's generally when we think of slavery, that's what we think about. And, uh, and, and we want to use caution when we go to the first century and read in our experience here in all of the evil 
of what happened here in, in America and, and in Europe and in Africa in the, the evil of the slave trade. We want to be clear, we don't import into the New Testament our understanding of slavery. All right? So that, that we want to use that caution. Number two, we want to understand that culturally, um, one-third of the Roman citizens in the, the known world, right? The Roman Empire was the known world. One-third of the population was slaves. One-third. And so many people often say, well, why didn't Paul preach against slavery? Why didn't he uh, seek to eradicate it? Well, friends, if he would have done that, uh, number one, it would have completely led to the collapse of the entire society. Secondly, it would have led to the complete annihilation of every single Christian. Because any uprising was squashed with total and utter bloodshed. And so what the New Testament church sought to do was subtly undermine the industry by seeing not only slaves equal with their masters, but giving them value and participation. I could go through a litany of lists to compare first century uh, slavery and what happened here in America. One example I'll give to you. The Apostle Paul addresses slaves here as human beings worthy of dignity. Friend, that was not true in chattel slavery in America. No one. They were property and they were merely no different than animals that were served, that did service in, in the fields. And so we want to be very cautious. We want to also understand the dynamic relationship is very different. In other words, these slaves could have gotten their way out of slavery. They could have paid back their debts. They could have, many of them freely submitted to it. It wasn't racially motivated. Slavery here in America was 100% racially motivated. However way you want to split that, it was motivated by superiority of one or many races over another. That was not the case here in the first century. So we need to be careful we don't read that into it. We also want to understand that many of these slaves were owned businesses. In fact, many of them had other slaves. Very, very different picture from what you and I understand here in our own experience. With all of that said, we want to be careful when we read this that we understand that, yes, this is a fallen world. In fact, I want to just point out very quickly before we look at our text that Paul himself undermines the whole enterprise of slavery in, in, at the very beginning of the book, in 1 Timothy chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles open, just turn there. We'll, we'll look at this very quickly. Chapter 1, verse 8. Now we know that the law is good if it is used lawfully. Understand this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedience. Disobedient. All right, so he's going to define what he means by lawless and disobedient. What does he say? Ungodly and sinners, unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality. Here it is, enslavers. Man-stealers, literally. Paul condemns the entire enterprise of the owning of another human being. But yet, he seeks to pastor his people. He seeks to shepherd young Timothy to, to look. You've got to meet people where they're at. 
It is a terrible situation, and we ought not to be a part of it, but we, we got to figure out how do we function in it. And then beyond that, we need to understand as Christians, how, how do we understand this? Well, friends, turn back to 1 Timothy 6, and we're, gonna, we're just going to look at these two verses this morning. Paul writes, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, let all who are under the yoke of bondservant regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the grounds that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who, benef- those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Friends, this is what we want to consider this morning. Regardless of where we find ourselves in, lives, in life, Christians are to reflect well the character of Christ and commend the gospel by honoring those in authority over us. That's what Paul's point is. Regardless of where we find ourselves, whether we are slaves or free workers, we ought to honor those in authority over us. We ought to commend the gospel regardless of where we find ourselves in life. And Paul's positive uh, admonition to these slaves, in no way is Paul supporting that. Sadly, there have been many, many preachers throughout the history of the church that have sought to legitimize the slave industry through the scriptures. That is illegitimate. That is a misinterpretation of this passage. Paul is in no way, in any other passage that he refers to, and particularly in the Old Testament, which is where they got most of their bad theology from, um, in no way does the Bible support that. As I pointed out from 1 Timothy 1, the Bible condemns this. But nonetheless, we find ourselves in, in very difficult places in a fallen world, don't we? we? Find ourselves in places where what do we do? How do we live? How do we honor God in, in, the, in this particular moment of life? And, and this is the principle that everyone, regardless of where we find ourselves, that we as Christians ought to reflect well the character of Christ and commend the gospel by honoring those in authority over us, whether we're slaves, whether we're imprisoned, or whether we're free men. We ought to honor those in authority over us. And so I want to encourage us to do that, to honor those who are in superior, who are our superiors, those that have authority over us. We ought to honor them We ought to respect them. And we do so in two ways. Number one, that Christians honor your unbelieving boss by respecting their authority. So we're going to bring these principles back to the 21st century. I'll show you how we're going to get there in a minute. But here's the principle. That Christians, we ought to honor your unbelieving boss by respecting their authority. Paul addresses here in verse 1, unbelieving slave owners. Unbelieving masters. Then in verse 2, Christians, honor your believing boss, your Christian boss, by serving them well as a brother or sister in Christ. You and I might find ourselves working for someone who's an unbeliever. And that has its own dynamic. Or we might find ourselves working for a fellow believer. And that also has a unique and challenging dynamic. Well, let's look here at the text. Verse 1, Paul addresses here those who are under a yoke as bondservants. Paul identifies them here in the, in the ESV as bondservants. Again, this is the ESV's attempt to distance itself from American slavery. The word itself means doulos, slave. And Paul makes clear the kind of uh, difficult situation they find themselves here, don't they? He uses the word yoke. Uh, this, of course, is a device that was placed on animals in order to control them. He makes clear that this is a, not a pretty picture. This is a terrible, deplorable picture of a, of a human being being yoked by another human being, treated as an animal, treated as a mere possession. 
as we make clear in the understanding here in this passage, one author writes this, that, that the word servant or slave is largely confined to a biblical translation in early New Te- earlier American times. It's, it's really a normal usage, but bondservant is a better translation in that it indicates one who sells himself into slavery to another. In other words, a bondservant, to be bonded, right? We use that word bond, right? Someone who's out on bond, Someone who promises that they'll do something, and if they don't, they owe money. In the case of bond, in in the way we use the word, often someone has a bond out for them. They promise that they'll appear to court, and if they don't, they owe the court a lot of money. Well, friends, we have that relationship with our debt, don't we? We sign documents where we say we promise to pay back this debt. Uh, We promise that we'll make monthly payments in, in in, in a certain amount of time. Right. And, and, and our our debtors are even you know, gracious to they. They say, hey, look, we'll give you 10 days of maybe grace period to, to get that in on time. Right? All of us sign up and we say we will do something. And, and similarly, right, we need to understand this as well. This one particular author goes on to say that that this uh, that many slaves in the Roman world became slaves through Roman subjugation of conquering nations, kidnapping or being born into slave households. And so we don't want to just kind of. You know, make this look, all look like a real smiley situation. Like, oh, they just kind of freely, you know, they're just trying to pay back some debt. You know, they got a little credit card debt, so they become slaves and, 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 and you know, they pay that debt off. Not at all. Yes, that was part of the problem, but, but, or part of some of it, but, but many of it is because of conquest and because of, of, of course, man-stealing that was often going on. And so Paul paints a very deplorable picture. It's a tremendous burden to be under a yoke of someone else. And again, we just kind of bring it back to our contemporary culture. Look, to be under a tremendous amount of debt, is it, does it not feel like a yoke? If you've ever been in a place where you've had a, a sizable debt that you can't pay, you can feel the weight. You can feel as if the world is collapsing upon you. And this is similar to what the language that Paul uses here. But I want you to notice here, just implicitly, the fact that Paul includes these, these, these brothers and sisters in the family. Friends, he doesn't address the, the cows and the horses. He doesn't address anyone else. He addresses them as human beings, worthy of dignity and respect. These are members of the church. These are brothers and sisters united. They, they, they're, they're a part of the gatherings. They sat in the pews. <laughs> they didn't have pews, all right. But they sat in the, they sat in the family. They met in people's homes. They were there. But many of them worked for unbelieving. And so in this first verse, we see here that, that Paul says that they ought, to, they ought to regard their own masters as worthy of all respect. Again, you notice here subtly, if you look at Paul's language, he says their own masters. Do you see that? You see, in American slavery, all slaves were viewed as slaves to every white man who had authority. Even in Roman times, it was similar. But here Paul says, no, to your own master." giving dignity to him outside of the home. And again, he says that they are worthy of all honor. Again, he prefaces it by all honor. Isn't it fascinating what he does here? The one who owns another is worthy of honor. Paul, have you lost your mind? What makes him worthy of honor? He owns me. He's in sin. Paul reminded the church in Ephesus four years earlier 
In Ephesians chapter 6, bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Ah, there it is. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ. Doing the will of God from your heart, rendering service with good will as to the Lord and not to man. He says, listen, friend. He says, oh yes, that tyrant master might not treat you well. But you worked it for him like you, as if you were working for King Jesus. Serve him like you're serving King Jesus. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, Paul says in Ephesians 6, 8, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or free. He says, look, the payday's coming, friend, and it's coming in eternity, and you're going to cash out like a king if you will obey me here on earth. Or similarly, in the pastoral letters, Paul writes to Titus, and he says, bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They're to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering but showing all good faith. Why? So that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. In other words, they weren't to be subservient for subservient sake. There was a purpose. There was a, there was a reason behind it. There was a bigger picture. And notice, look at the text again. Verse 1. Do you see that word, so that? Well, there it is. The purpose. The purpose was so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. In other words, there was a bigger goal in mind than the, than the present context that these slaves found them in. Namely, the glory of God and, and the expansion of the kingdom. Paul's reference here to the teaching most likely referring to the gospel, the, the, the teaching, the apostles' teaching of the gospel. You see, when, when Christians don't serve well when they rebel, then they would naturally cause the whole of Christianity to be cast aside. Imagine if, if the word got around, as these Christians say, they're just spending all their time, you know, reading their Bibles, not working, you know, checking their Facebook pages and, you know, updating people on Scripture, not serving and working hard. The reputation would have got out. And oh, friend, isn't that the reputation so often of us as Christians? Do we have the reputation of hard workers? Of those who are lazy? Paul here calls these servants to serve their masters well, that the gospel is not slandered. The word there, reviled, means to slander, hypocrisy. We're not to bring shame and slander upon the name of Christ by their laziness or rebelliousness. As we think about this this morning, no doubt many of us find our place in a similar location. We have earthly bosses. Maybe you work for a, a cruel, unbelieving manager. Maybe your boss at work is... It's conniving and evil and manipulative. and Well, if you could, you'd punch him in the face. Let's be honest. Do you ever consider that the way you go about your work, your job, the effort that you put into it, has an evangelistic effect on those around you? If you're truly living for Jesus, those around you should know that you live for Jesus. 
You've probably already anointed him, right, with your I Love Jesus t-shirt. <laughs> or your Shine FM playing in the background, right? Or you've already told him, right, you got your Bible in hand. I'm here. I'm a Christian. I brought my Bible to work. Look at me. You can't stop me. But do you undermine the gospel you preach by your poor work ethic? Are you the reason why your co-workers won't believe in Jesus? Because they see how little you work. How little you care. They hear you gossiping about the boss just like everyone else. Bad-mouthing and complaining They see you coming late to work and checking out early. They see your face buried in your phone all day. Seeing how many likes you got. Or watching the latest bottle flip video on YouTube. Whatever it is. Are you a hard worker? Friends, as Christians, we ought to exemplify the gospel And it is tempting for us to work less hard, to develop resentment. Man, I I should have had that promotion. I should be in their place. I deserve this. I worked hard for this. But then you develop resentment, bitterness. So you give up and you don't work as hard. A number of years ago, shoot about about 18 years now. I was working in the trades and we were struggling as a family. The guys around me, we, we were struggling. We, we, were, we were frankly at that point in our life happy to work three days out of five. We were just scraping by. We had just gotten back from a job where it had been raining all day. We had, we had done a, a, an underground at a house and so we had slopped in mud all day long. We had mud from head to toe. We were, we were exhausted. And there was already a growing bitterness and resentment among the, 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 the troops and already a growing frustration with the owner of the company. Would you have it know that day when we were kind of cleaning our boots off and getting ready to slop ourselves into our cars and head home, our boss comes rolling up in a brand new four-door truck. One of them big old RVs, not them little travel trailer things, you know, like those fifth wheels, you know, that's got, I mean, 40 footer. I mean, just a mess. All the, all the while we're, we're literally, literally scraping by. It's hard in those situations not to grow bitter, isn't it, friends? Not to want to work a little less and slack off. You see, as Christians, we're called to work well and to serve well. We need to be remembered that, reminded that we are under authority. We ought to pay our bills on time. We ought to pay our debts back. We, we ought to understand that when we sign on the dotted line, that the name of Jesus is on the line. That we ought to submit to the rules and regulations and laws and live as good citizens. That is a measure of obeying this passage. Respecting those in authority that are unbelievers. Friends, if you think there's a lot of Christians in Washington, well, you just haven't been paying attention very much, have you? (laughs) But nonetheless, 
we are called to submit. Friend, do it for the glory of Christ, as this passage calls it, so that the name of God and teaching may not be reviled. Do it with an evangelistic effort. Understand that you are a witness to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ in the workplace, in the public square, in the home, and in the church. What you do with your hands ought to, ought to display what God has done for you in Christ. Period. You might say, well, that boss doesn't deserve that. Well, friend, you didn't deserve the gospel. You didn't deserve any of this. You, you and I deserve hell. You, you understand that, right? And although we might feel like we're living in hell, God has still called us to be servants. What did Jesus himself do? Wash the feet of those who were going to betray him. Not only as top lieutenant in, in the apostle Peter, But also in Judas, he washed their feet knowing that Peter was going to deny him. His best friend was going to deny him and his betrayer would deny him. He washed their feet. Friend, if our Savior is worthy of coming here to this filthy world and washing our feet, well, it's not beneath us to do some subservient jobs for the glory of Christ. As Christians, we ought to honor those in authority over us, especially those who are unbelievers. But what do we do when they're Christians? Paul here understands that this is a difficult situation. Again, these slaves would have been attending church with their bosses. What an awkward situation, wasn't it, Ben? What, what, a, what an attempting place this might have been to see themselves as equal and therefore disrespect them. So what he says, isn't it? Look at verse two. Those of you who have believing masters, that is Christian masters, those who are Christians. And again, we're not going to get in the weeds on on that whole thing. Let's not go there yet. Regardless of where they found themselves and regardless of understanding of should that Christian really been having masters, we must understand that they must not be disrespectful. On the ground that they are what? Brothers. In other words, the the language there, on the basis of the standard of. In other words, the argument went as followed. Look, my boss is my brother and we are equal in Christ. Therefore, I don't have to listen to what he says anymore. He's my brother. He's not my boss anymore. He's my brother in Christ. And so this relationship has changed. And Paul's like, whoa, 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 time out. Not at all. Yes, he affirms, of course, that they are brothers in Christ. That's what he says. He's your brother. Yes, I want to affirm you are equal. We are all one in Christ. There is neither slave nor nor free nor sentient nor barbarian. They all are one in Christ. Yes, we want to affirm that. But we also, when we come to faith in Christ, that doesn't change our temporal arrangements, does it? I'm just going to imagine for a moment if, if someone you know, became a Christian and then you know, just kind of shows up to work, perhaps reading their Bible the whole time. Well, hey, I'm a Christian. The Bible, I'm supposed to read my Bible. And so I'm going to read my Bible and pray. I'll, I'll get to my job here in a moment. <laughs> no. That's not how that works. 
You have a responsibility. You've signed on the dotted line that you will do your job and show up on time and do it for X number of dollars and so on and so forth. You've agreed. And so Paul says, listen, don't disrespect them merely on the ground that they are your boss. No doubt many of you maybe have had that, that experience where you've attended a church or been a member of a church where, where your boss is, a, is also a member. Right? It's, a, it's difficult. Um, especially if something goes wrong, isn't it? A little awkward. Something happens. Your, your boss is right there and giving you the little evil eye because you did something wrong at work. It's a difficult reason. But, but, but nonetheless, we ought to see that they ought not to respect on this particular ground that they are equal in Christ. Rather, he says, they must serve all the better. Now notice the position Paul takes here. He says, listen, if you have a believing boss, a believing master, you ought to serve them all the better. Why? Why? He gives two reasons. Number one, because they benefit of the benefit of your good service. The benefit. In other words, you're a blessing to those whom you work for. If we have Christian, the, the Christian uh, bosses, managers, whoever, we ought to understand that, that when we work for them, we ought to be a blessing to them, not a curse to them. We ought to add some benefit to them. Do you ever have that eye to your work? You see, this is when work is theological. When we understand that when we work, we are, we are acting like God. Now hear me out. I'm not saying you are trying to dethrone God, okay, or somehow say that you're better than God. That's not what I mean. What I mean is, is that we reflect the character of God through our work, okay? And in this size of a congregation, we've all been gifted in a variety of ways, Not everyone in this room is gifted to do one particular thing. There is a variety of gifts. Some are really good at office stuff. Some are really good at working with their hands. Some are really good at working with their minds or their eyes or a whole host of a variety of of means, right? In each of these ways, we are displaying the creative work of God in our lives. When, when, a, when a woodworker takes a, just an ugly, cold piece of wood and crafts it into a beautiful piece of furniture, it is a, is a reflection of God creating out of nothing this beautiful creation. It is a display of God's creative power in the life of his creation. When we work, we ought to work with the aim of helping and benefiting others. In other words, service is more about whom you serve and not being served. Seems like Jesus said something about that. That we ought to serve and not merely be served. In other words... Do you think you're a blessing in the lives of others or a curse? Would your employer consider you as a blessing? Would would those whom you are in authority to a blessing or a curse? More than that, notice here that, that Paul is exhorting them to relentlessly serve them well because they are believers and notice and beloved. 
that as Christians, we ought to be relentlessly serving others because they are our brothers and sisters in Christ. The the very thing that was hindering good service, Paul says, ought to be the means of good service. The one thing that that these slaves were using as an excuse not to work hard, Paul says, should have been the basis for them working hard. Look, you ought to be working hard. They're a brother and sister. Now, again, here he goes with that family language, isn't it? We're a family. We ought to treat each other like family, right? We ought to love each other. You wouldn't do that to your family. Why would you do that to a fellow brother, sister in Christ? And then lastly, with all the thrust of this word. Oh, this is a big word, brothers and sisters. Don't pass this up. Not only are they familial brothers and sisters in Christ. Not only are they equal and ought they be a blessing to others because they're in a family. But he concludes by saying, you ought to serve well because they're beloved. Now, this isn't just some archaic word that's come down from the King James, beloved. This has some meaning, right? It means to be loved by another. Well, who's he talking about? He's talking about God's love for us in Christ. In other words, of every family has a dad, and that dad is God. He is the father. And we ought to serve those well because God loves them. And his son died for them. And therefore, they are worthy of our respect and dignity. It's a game changer, friends. Brothers and sisters, that completely radically shapes how we view our work. How we view our care for one another. Whether it is that we are getting a paycheck for it. Or whether we're serving one another in the life of this local church. We ought to have that in view. That we are family and family takes care of one another. And secondly, that there is a father in heaven who sent his son to die for them. And therefore they are worthy and valuable because of that reason. And if God would love them. Who are you to say that you can't love them? Friend, we ought to see that when we relentlessly serve others, we genuinely become a blessing in the lives of those around us. We ought to see as brothers and sisters, when we serve well, we are a blessing to them. And we ought to see that God is glorified in our good service for others. And so, do you have a reputation for hard work? Whether you have an unbelieving boss or or a believing boss or, or whether you work... On your own, whatever you do, wherever you find yourself right now in life, whether you're retired, whether you're out of work, whether you're self-employed or whether you're employed, wherever you are, do you respect those in authority over you? Do you exemplify the gospel in your life? Do you commend Christ or repel people from Christ? Let the words of Paul just sit on you as we conclude. Let all who are under a yoke of bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have a believing master must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, 
They must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Let's pray. Father, we pray that we as your children might give you glory through our good service. Oh, Father, may we be those who exemplify the gospel through our hard work, not through laziness. Help us to fight these temptations for your glory and our good in Christ's name. Amen.